Thank you for watching the Best Barbecue Show. This is a special episode as part of my trip to Ohio with Certified Angus Beef. I am here with Chef Jeremy Umansky and Brian Hello. Chef, host of Meat Speak. Hello. Um, we are at Larder, which is your... A barbecue joint. <laughs> Not a barbecue joint. <laughs> no. But one of, I mean, a very impressive space, an old firehouse that you've turned into kind of uh, your laboratory for just amazing... Amazing food. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, super old firehouse, 1854. Um, for all intents and purposes, it's the oldest that's still standing in Cleveland. So it's, it's cool. And things like uh, the wood on this table and the banquette that you guys are sitting on, uh, that's all wood from the 1890 remodel wow. after this building got hit by a tornado. So we were really conscious of the space is just like preserving what it was, what it looked like, and just reincorporating any materials we could into it. And did you, when you, when you chose the space, like, were you, you know, th this isn't, uh, this is a part of the world where there, I'm sure there are a lot of spaces to choose from because Cleveland's kind of on this, this rise up. It's, it's coming back from, you know, I, I lived in upstate New York. The same thing happened. Like, all the, everyone just kind of left all of a sudden. Right, that steel town curse. Yeah, exactly. Right, like steel collapsed, and new industry had to replace it. Yeah. And there's one steel mill. We drove by it that's still going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's still, there's still one cranking away. They're not so, making much, but they, they are cranking. So what was, did you walk into here and go, nope, this is it? Or did you look at a lot of places? Or um, Interestingly enough, so when we were, we looked at a lot of places. Uh, on the east side of the city, kind of around this area. We weren't even really thinking this area. We were concentrated on the east side because we're an Eastern European deli with, like, Jewish deli roots. Yeah. And the other few big Jewish delis in Cleveland are, are all east side because that's where all the Jewish people live. Right. So that's essentially where we were looking. Um, and then through someone who was kind of advising us as we were writing our business plan and that sort of thing, uh, we were introduced to our current landlord, who, lo and behold, was coming to my, I give a lot of lectures around town. He had been coming to my lectures, him and his wife, uh, for a good year at that point. And probably about five, six months before we met, they sent me a Facebook message. But because we weren't linked, it went into that weird, oh, like, the, the request folder. And it was, like, right when they launched the request folder. So, like, I had no clue it existed. So we get linked up. I find the message that afternoon because he's like, I messaged you like a while ago. And we just hit it off, completely just hit it off. The space, um, Graham Vesey and Marika Shori Clark, like our landlords, just fantastic people. They live a block from here. Their office is above us. Amazing. So finding a developer and a partner who wasn't just kind of like a, a blind face, you know, with like a crazy development or strip mall or that sort of thing, Someone that was truly vested was, like, super important to us because that's how me and Kenny and my wife, Allie, like, us as chef owner, that's how we are with this business. So finding that partner and that aspect of it was just fantastic. And just right away, the, the heritage of the, the building, the history behind it, and the area that we're in, just everything lined up. Do you ever think, like, Ghostbusters? Does that ever cross your mind? 
Because that's... I, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, you should be here in summer, too, when this door goes up. That's awesome. I, I'll tell you what, what was, like, a huge selling point for us, too. Graham said to us, there was just a regular garage door here with, like, frosted glass on it. And he said, they make garage doors with another door in it. And we had never heard of that. We were so blown away that, like, we could have a windowed storefront with another door, yet still be able to put the whole thing up. That was, like... We were like, okay, done. Yeah. You've got us. I, I had to look at it twice earlier because I like we walked in and then we were eating pastries and I looked back and I was like, is that the door we came through? Oh, there's a handle. Like it, I'd never seen anything right? like that. Right, like a garage door with another door in it. We had never, yeah. So and we we were like super stoked because in the summer when the weather's nice and in fact, if you would have been here, I don't know, five weeks ago or so, we had like two days in a row that were 65 and sunny, in winter. Nice. We we had the door open. We got some Texas weather. <laughs> you have to understand, this is not typical for Cleveland. Yeah, of this course. Is, climate change is real. <laughs> yeah. It, like, com- seriously, and, and we do a lot of, like, foraging. We go out in the wild and we pick food. Like, we're, we're seeing major impacts, and, like, yeah, there, there should be a solid foot of snow on the ground right now, and it should be, like, 20 degrees Fahrenheit. I, I was surprised when I got off the plane, and I was like, okay, I'm not dying. Yeah. So I'm still, I still have some of my northern toughness. And then I was like, where's all the snow? Why are all the cars so clean? Yeah. Have they we, even, like, salted the roads yet? There's been a couple times. But we That's got dumped it. on last week. We had it for, like, two or three days. And then it warmed up to, like, the low 40s. And it rained. And it, it's gone. Now are you? And I hate the snow. Really? I do not like winter. What are you doing in Cleveland? I'm born and bred. <laughs> I went away for a long. I went away for a decade. Spread my wings. But, yeah. I, I, see, I love the snow. I don't know how I ended up in Texas. I despise it. Uh, it. So does the weather, you know, I haven't, I haven't toured how you, you set up your whole operation, but does the weather affect kind of how things are aging back there, or is it all kind of controlled? No, I mean, it's not as controlled as you would think. Right. I mean, we're very old world in our approach. So uh, our curing room, we just have like a freestanding air conditioner that keeps the room around 60 degrees. Um, if we need to, we turn the humidifiers on in there, and that's about it. Um, there's other approaches that we take um, just to kind of manage things, but you don't need as much control as you're necessarily led to believe you do. And that's one of the beautiful things. And are you doing that by feel, or you've got a bunch of machines in there kind of t- giving you updates as to... No, it's all by feel. It's all like, oh, it's not quite humid enough in here. Yeah, I mean, our our approach to uh, how we wanted this concept to be, we wanted to be a delicatessen and not a deli. Meaning we wanted to be more influenced by what you still find in Europe or what you would have found in New York City or parts of New England, you know, turn of the last century in terms of how we made our food and the food that we were making, the items that we were making. So with that influence, you know, we use these older production methods. And, you know, there's plenty of things that we analyze and we conceptualize and we run data on and different analytics. But when it comes to the approach of making it, if it's, don't, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, how many people, I know a lot of people, but, you know, I ask this, uh, how many people do you know that just kind of hang a ham in their basement, you know, or just have a barrel of sauerkraut in the kitchen and they, it's just there. And when it's good and ready, it's eaten. That's it. Well, and um, even in America in the past, it was more common than it is now. Oh, we, yeah. We've let grocery stores and refrigeration kind of 
Yeah, I, I don't want us to, to dwell on this just being a, an American thing, too. Because in Europe, it's the same thing. In Japan, it's the same thing. China, like, all of these food traditions and ways of producing, have they've been more or less in danger of going ex- extinct. We have people documenting it, but as much as you document, if you don't keep practicing, that's when you have a problem. Because then you end up with whole generations of people now who, yes, are familiar with the foods, enjoy the foods, want to eat them, but have no clue how they're produced. And when people want to exercise their right and their individual sovereignty for food security and go ahead and try to make some of this, if they've never had that experience, then we've got a real problem. Because there's a lot of techniques and methodology that can be lost in translation. And somebody that may know a lot about the production of these foods may not be able to explain it in a way that's completely relatable or through the lens of someone who has just no clue what they're doing. We do a lot of classes here about charcuterie making and fermentation and working with koji molds. And one of the first things we do after everybody introduces themselves is we say, A, this isn't school, so you don't have to raise your hand to ask a question. You know, I do that in regular life. Right, sometimes. exactly. And, and B, there is no stupid question, and this is a judgment-free zone. Because there are some people, home cooks, you know, that just don't understand basic food safety, like things like cross-contamination or like how often they should wash their hands or how long they should wash their hands for. So we just like, you know, like ask those questions. It's okay. I've had them at one point. Somebody else in the room has it. Like you're not going to be an idiot. Nobody's going to laugh at you. So we're really focusing on like pushing that stuff out there. Creating a safe learning environment. 100%. We have to have that with food. Right? Food safety is a real thing that we have to be aware of and we have to practice. And, you know, we've got these endemic problems now where we have E. coli in our scallions. Right? Like, it's a real thing. Yeah. In, like, so, spinach and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have to just be as open as we can. Part of the reason we have these problems is lack of oversight but also lack of understanding. So the more of us that understand what's going on, hopefully we'll, we'll get some solutions, some answers. Well, and Brian was telling me that you've had to educate the uh, health department a little bit with, uh, with, with what you're doing here. You know, we, we educate them as far as the questions they ask. And that's, you know, that's all we can do. So um, on other levels, we're working with food safety consultants. We're hopefully going to be working with our state ag school, Ohio State University, to really get some long-term data, verified research behind a lot of the things. And that, that stuff takes years and years. Yeah. And as we're finding out, potentially millions of dollars. So that's our big thing that we're focusing on now. So, yeah, I mean, we work with all our food safety partners to the best of our ability and their ability. And we just want everybody to understand, like, we're all in this together, right? Like, the health department realizes that, we have a joy and a craft that we want to pursue and also that we collect tax dollars for the city and for them. Yeah. So they want us to do business as much as we want to do business. It's, it's a two-lane street. We're in it together to work together. And that's an approach I think chefs just need to focus on and take. Like the health department isn't there as individuals, as inspectors to like crack a hammer down no. or, you know, or, or do something to put you out of business. They're here to keep the public safe. And for you as a business person, your job is to keep people safe. Like, if people eat here and get sick, my business will close. Word of mouth will spread. And when people have a good experience, they tell, like, one or two people. When people have a bad experience, they tell a dozen or more. Yeah. 
so and Yelp and yeah and Yelp and all those forums so you know we want to work with our food safety partners as intensively as we can to, to just make sure that everybody wins that's the goal well and uh, you know it, it, it's nice that you're taking the time to do this because it's it's funny because you go back you know 10,000 years ago people were doing this stuff and obviously it was used to make the food safer almost in the it, beginning it was right and safety in terms of the food like that was something that wasn't necessarily on people's mind at that point it was more about stability and having access to the food right so it wouldn't spoil but coincidentally the techniques involved in preventing food from spoiling are ones that also keep it safe so there are two things that evolved right and as we kind of got more scientific understanding as to what was happening especially Louis Pasteur and germ theory and understanding microbes in our food and how contamination worked. You know, John Snow observed a cholera outbreak in the 1850s coming out of the River Thames. Ten years later, Louis Pasteur proposes germ theory. We start to understand how microbes can make us sick. You know, so these techniques we have from pre-antiquity and antiquity that were actually just designed to allow us to have food when we needed it. Not necessarily when we wanted it. We weren't there yet as civilization. But when we needed it and to nourish ourselves, actually helped to make the food safe. And that was, you know, discovered, you know, end of the 1800s or so. But since then, we've been, been working on making sure that's the case for everybody. So can you write a HACCP plan like in your sleep now? No. <laughs> no. And that's why I work with food safety consultants. Uh, now, I can understand a HACCP plan, and, and I mean, here's the, the whole thing about HACCP that is, is really disparaging for a restaurant owner, is we're required to have it for a lot of different things if we want to produce it. It's expensive to get a HACCP plan written. There are food safety consultants out there that it's approachable, and, you know, it, it's something that you can do for, you know, 500 to $1,000 a plan. The time needed to invest in keeping the HACCP current and actually working it is extremely burdensome, especially for a small operator that may have just seven people on their staff. And you don't have someone that you're paying $50,000 a year to whose sole job is to keep up with that HACCP. The other thing is, too, HACCP was designed for industrially produced foods. It wasn't designed for small, chef-driven concepts. So. Ideally, at some point, I'd like to see something very similar to HACCP, but that's designed more for a chef that changes their menu all the time or their sourcing changes due to the flux of seasons and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I'm not buying several metric tons of one ingredient and then canning it and then sending it out. Um, I'm buying lots of small purchases from lots of different local purveyors. And trying to be able to submit a variance with every time my sourcing changes or keep up with, you know, maybe sometime I forgot to order one ingredient, so I leave it out knowing, all right, it's not going to change the quality. Nobody's going to really notice the difference. It's like there because I designed it that way. Do I have to then submit a variance for that? Do I have to track that? Do I have to submit it for approval? Like a lot of those things are intensely burdensome for a small operator. Whereas Especially on a larger, with so many ingredients. Yeah, exactly. So on a, on a larger scale, it's surprisingly much easier, especially when you have the resources to devote to pay someone to just do that. So we'd like to see a system that is just as accountable as HACCP develop, be developed for restaurateurs and yeah. small small chefs. Yeah, if you want to just have a dozen jars of pickles and some 
aged beef or something. Yeah. You know, you don't need this crazy plan for it. Right. Right. And and, and that's the thing. And and we're not going to see that, though, until more chefs start talking about this and talking about the realistic need for it, right? So if we just say, oh, it's burdensome, I don't have time, blah, 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 like, all right, so let's break this down. Let's present some, some real information that shows quantifiably why this is a burden for a small-scale food producer. And what we also need to present alternatives, like what can be done in its place that is just as safe, just as verifiable, but is less burdensome for concepts that, that have this flux. We're still trying to figure out those answers, but we need to start having, as chef operators, we need to start having those conversations all the time. Well, and, you know, we're sitting here with one of your regulars. Uh, yeah. And, 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 like, a lot of the people that are eating here, they don't. You know how I know he's one of our regulars? How's that? Because of his physique. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've been told I, other than, a, you know, the age factor, I would be a delicious animal. You probably I'm would I'm well, be. well marbled. <laughs> and I'm stocky and low to the ground. So. You know, when I was in culinary school, there, there was this um, uh, conversation, hypothetical, that someone had was, like, if you were to eat people, what would be the choice? And, and as horrific as it is, I think it was a vegan's milk-fed baby would be, like, <laughs> the optimal, right? I mean, we do it with veal, and we do it with baby. Like, we're, this is all hypothetical. Totally. But, yeah. So maybe, maybe you wouldn't be so delicious. Uh, you know, yeah, that's right. You know, 30, 40 years, that's a lot of, I don't, I don't know what you call that in meat, but <laughs> it, I'm sure it'd be tough. <laughs> your your techniques would be very yeah, useful but, in that but, yeah, aspect. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I've also been fairly marinated for the last several years in Guinness. How appropriate <laughs> is it that Jeffrey Dahmer is, like, from this Cleveland-Akron area <laughs> and we are discussing eating people right now? Well, I mean, they feed, uh, what's it, uh, is it Kobe where they feed them beer constantly? Yeah, yeah sake yeah. And, the, and the Lees, the, the, the solids, yeah. Sign me up, you know. Yeah. That's my retirement yeah. gig. Exactly. That's that's. <laughs> The worst thing that happens to you, you know, <laughs> drink a lot of beer and then you call it. That's it. Be delicious. <laughs> well, so you have a lot of history in these techniques. What was, was it like a family member? What kind of got you on the journey that brought you here? Um, a, a lot of what I do, like a, a lot of people ask me about things separately, about the fermentation and the foraging or the meat curing and, you know, or the Eastern European, the Jewish food. And uh, in my eyes, it's all super interconnected. I mean, we, sure. we go... And if we go back not too far, it is, realistically. Um, and at various points in my life, I had all the them happening at one time. So it was very easy for me to kind of just group everything together and say, this is what I want to do and how I want to do it. Um, and, it, you know, definitely a long journey. I mean, I'm in my soon-to-be late 30s. I'll be 37 next month huh? or March you know, a little bit off. You're a fermenter. <laughs> you you got to think ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so at, at various points, I had different influences. You know, in, in my younger life with my parents, my mom knew a few different wild plants. We'd go pick wild berries and that sort of thing. Uh, when I was in culinary school, I was a land manager of a 40-acre farm. At the CIA? With, yep. Well, the farm wasn't at the CIA, but yeah. Um, Paul Weekston, the gentleman who owned the farm, was the head buyer for the school. He managed 
the produce room, the meat room, everything, all, any ingredient that came in that school, Paul saw on a daily basis. And his family had been farming the Hudson Valley uh, since the 1700s when they came over from, I believe it was Wales, something like that. Paul actually wrote the product knowledge book that the school uses. So I worked with Paul. Paul was also on the alumni board for Cornell, and we were a Cornell testing station for heirloom varieties and seed okay. saving on the farm. So I was doing that. Also at that same time, I hosted Sander Katz, the fermentation guru, uh, for a couple of weeks at school and was tasked and taking him around the Hudson Valley and doing events. And I studied underneath him, um, studied wild mushrooms with what we were doing on the farm with Cornell. And so all this stuff just kind of all happened at one time for me. Um, well, and, and this area, you know, I grew up not, not far from here in Rochester. So this area is just so fertile. You know, when I moved to Texas, I was amazed at how hard the land was and how everything just gets killed by the sun and the drought. Yeah, my wife's from Norman, Oklahoma. Oh, that man. hard red soil. The first time I went there, I just remember looking out and how red and hard everything was. And I was like, where's your, where's your dirt? Dirt's supposed to be black. Yeah. <laughs> like, where? where the grass is what supposed is to be soft, not like yeah. sandpaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This sawgrass they have down there. Oh, it's the worst. My wife calls it crunchy grass. That's what she calls it. Well, I've, I've brought uh, Texan friends back home or to the northeast on trips, and I'm like, I want you to take off your shoes and walk in the grass, and you'll see what I'm talking about because they don't realize that, like, grass can be soft. Yeah. Like, crazy soft. Like, you can sleep in it like a yeah. bed. Yeah. It's delicious. You just lay down and <laughs> just take a nap. Well, I, so the first time I went, uh, I landed in Austin, I went to this place where everyone goes swimming, and I just, like, laid down on the grass, and I was like, oh, my God, what, like, what's wrong with the grass here? It hurts me. <laughs> And then there's the fire ants on top of that. That's right. Oh my God, the fire ants! You like, you we're reckless here, especially in the Cleveland area. Especially when we go out and we forage and that sort of thing. Yeah, we're not reckless with what we harvest. We know the mushroom. We're not going to kill anybody right. with yeah, that. Yeah. But we have no poisonous snakes here. Uh, our largest predator up here. Every once in a while, there's a black bear sighted. You know, in like a 50 square mile area. Yeah. But coyotes. But they're afraid of us. So we have really have no apex predators up here. Uh, we don't have fire ants. We've got, you know, we've just got regular bees. We don't have, like, yeah. you know. The big crazy black ants that don't do anything. Yeah, we don't have black widow spiders. We don't have, you know, yeah. no poisonous snakes. So, like, we, we, just, we just romp around. Yeah. So Kenny and I have had to watch ourselves on some of our travels, going to see chef buddies, and, like, they're like, oh, let's go foraging. And we're, like, we're, we're flipping over logs <laughs> and, like, kicking the dirt and stuff. They're like, you're going to get bit by a rattlesnake if that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> or, or, or worse, uh, a mountain lion, right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Which, yeah. Don't run away from a mountain lion. Dude, I, cats I in it. general are just, that, that's not, that's not a, the eyes I want to lock with. But <laughs> I, I've done it in, in Texas. You, you don't even realize. You're just walking around. You stop to take a picture. You're doing something. And even the smallest anthill, if you're standing on it, you step on it, they will just, they'll be up to your knees before yeah. you know it. And I've had to go, like, running, like, take your socks off, wipe your leg, because, like, I'll, it's like they know. They wait until they're like, okay, we're, we're at his knee. Now we can all start biting. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's exactly. Like the craziest There's enough thing. of us hey. that have covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here the biggest dangerous animal is, I mean, maybe somebody pushes a sleeping cow over on you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really it for Ohio. Yeah, but wait, let's think about cow tipping for a sec. <laughs> It's impossible. I used, yeah, so I used to think cow tipping was like a real thing that you could do. Yeah. You can't tip a cow. They got a low center of gravity. Well, not only that, I mean, even the three of us, 
right? Like yeah. if we ran full speed into a cow, A, that cow would probably see us coming and like move out of the way. <laughs> they're surprisingly agile and fast. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quick. B, running in, uh, the three of us running into them would be the equivalent of running into a brick wall. Like yeah. you're not, you're yeah. not knocking that it cow over cow. Yeah. at all. Cow dipping just, it can't, it doesn't exist. It's a myth. I, I, what I, was it, Tommy Boy or was Tommy it Black Boy. Sheep? Okay. So. Oh, no. Yeah, I think it was Tommy Boy. It was one of the two. Yeah, I and mean, he just like. Almost the same movie. To- totally fails. Yeah. Yeah. But now also I hear that um, cow pastures and those kinds of places are a great place for foraging though, right? I mean, yeah, they can be. Any habitat can be. I mean, we there's this beautiful black locust tree that grows right across the street, and there's two different species of wild mushrooms that we regularly forage that grow on that tree. So, like, here in, like, the heart of, you know, the urban center of Cleveland, like, there's they're growing. So it's it, it doesn't matter where you are. So one of the things that I pay attention to a lot is, like, I, I was, I've been following the barbecue boom because that's been a big wave that's been coming up. Uh, you know, you know we fed Daniel Vaughn a couple times here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can't remember who told me about this first, but it might have been one of his articles. I'm not sure. But I actually, in my Google Maps, I have it pinned, and it just says, get the fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wish I had written down in that note who had told me that. But uh, it might have been a TV show, too. But so, uh, you know, what do you think is, con- like, there was a time where, people could go and they knew that there was food everywhere and now people like if you told someone that you made something off the tree across the street they'd be like no you know <laughs> so like, what is what well, is the so, disconnect so so we're almost two years in so when people hear that here they're like oh that's great yeah. that's like why we came here <laughs> that's why we came so, here yeah so so it works for us um yeah i mean if you look at our menu if you actually like the menu board's right there and how it's written out. We don't have words like fermentation or, you know, wild this or wild that. And we've integrated all those ingredients and those techniques into our cuisine in a way where we don't necessarily call them out because we want anybody to come in here and just be comforted like that the fried chicken sandwich is just a fried chicken sandwich. Yeah. If we talk about how the bun on there has buttermilk that's been curdled using a mold that's been used in, in, you know, Japanese and Chinese food for several thousand years. And then that mold bathes the chicken. And then, you know, like if we get into all that, people, you know, they, they get a little intimidated or scared. And we don't want that to happen around food. So what we find is we, we keep the approach very straightforward. And then people come to us and they say, wow, that was delicious. That was like, that was like something super familiar, but unlike anything of it I've ever had. Then we have the conversation, well, here's how we produce it. Here's how we make it. This is what we do. So that's, that's been our, our goal. That's, that's how we've approached things. Well, and I think there's a safety in taste it, then we'll tell you what's in it. <laughs> yeah, but there's also, you know, if someone doesn't even trust you in the first place or know that they right. can't, like, you know, there can be an issue there, you know? Well, I'm sure, you know, something that I, I see a lot uh, is, like, there's always the friend. There's like the leader of the pack that's like, let me, and they come in and they kind of like just regurgitate. And we have that, yeah, yeah. We, we have that a lot. We have that. But that's that nice, right, fun. to hear your words coming out of other people and like oh, yeah. have like people bring their own tour guide to your, your place. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the reality is some people don't care that we use this ancient, you know, Asian mold in the creation of our pastrami, and other people do. So we get... We get the people that are interested coming into here for that. Yeah. 
the other people are coming in because someone said it's some of the best pastrami they've ever had, and that's that, and that's all that matters to them, you know? So um, fortunately for us, we did pop-ups. Kenny and I did pop-ups in Alley for a good two years before we opened this concept. So people were kind of just, they were just at the point where they were waiting for a brick and mortar to open. Well, and, and kind of what I was saying, saying earlier, uh, I think that there is, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of lager and Pilsner, like the lager types of beers, and I think they've been kind of pushed to the side for, with hazy IPAs and everything that's popular. I think that the same way that these new foods, I think fermentation is on deck to be the next thing that people are craving, that you're going to start seeing people having well, koji kits at home. But that's just it. Okay, so koji, yes, I can see that being, the, especially in, in Western culture, but fermentation hasn't gone anywhere. Fermentation right. has always been prevalent. It's always been buzz. It's always been hot. All right, so it hasn't always been necessarily like referred to as fermentation or like these probiotic foods, like these some of these buzzwords that we've attached to them. But we've always loved chocolate and coffee and beer and bread and pickles, like everybody, no matter where you are in the world. So it it has its popularity has never decreased. What we've seen is a decrease in the making of these foods at home and the general understanding of them, kind of like we touched on earlier. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, like I made kimchi for the first time a couple years ago. Uh, and I think some people like to be blissfully ignorant to the methods that it takes to make something good. They'd rather just go have someone else buy it. But there yeah. is, you know, with YouTube and, and there is this freedom, you know, that's what we're creating right now. Like, no. Well, the reality of it, too, some people are kind of grossed out by different biological systems right. and how they work. Like when you talk about the microbes in that kimchi are metabolized. So they're, they're simplistically, they are eating the vegetables and then they are pooping out an organic acid onto it to preserve it. Yeah. So, like, you're eating this slop-preserved vegetable that's, like, marinated in bacterial poop. Like, single, the poop of single-celled animals. Like, the reality of that, like, grosses some people out, you know? Like, you, you don't see that on menus very often. No, no. <laughs> bacterial poop special. Yeah, yeah. Well, but at the same time, then, like, I, I kind of, like, audibly wooed when I tried that eggplant because, like, you take a bite of it, and you're just not expecting that much from an eggplant. No. You're used to, and I take a bite, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, Especially this. eggplant that's, let's see here. Eggplant that's five, maybe six months old at this point. Yeah, and that, that uh, asparagus was a year old. Yeah, just about, in May, in a few months, yeah. And it's like most people. And it was still crispy and crunchy and like. But the, the, the depth and the. The, just the wild. I don't even know how to quantify. It's like I'm learning how to talk about wine. I need you need like a chart just to help me talk about like the flavors coming out of that eggplant because it was just like I wanted. I took too big of a bite and I was just like like thrown off. Like well, and we hear wide. we yeah we hear from a lot of people too. Like some of our foods can be like overwhelming, right? Yeah, because it's intense. The, the intensity of uh, either the spices that are put with them or the preservation technique, you know different aromatic compounds and flavor compounds are created with these, especially when we start to age them out. It's really interesting with some of the ferments. Uh, as they age out, interestingly enough, a lot of them start to taste like salami or, or aged meat. Part of that is we've had all these microbes in there that did their thing, and they exhausted their food source, and it got so acidic in there they can't survive. So what happens? The same thing that happens in aged meat their bodies, their cell structure is very similar to the cell structure like in the muscle tissue. So they start to break down. Enzymes in them break them down 
and you have their fats breaking down and their, you know, their carbohydrates and their proteins that make up their little bodies on the scale of hundreds of thousands, millions of them in there. So we get the same kind of flavor. Now, granted, the acid is there. We get these same umami and savory flavors with these aged ferments that we do find in aged and cured meats, and it's just fantastic. And we don't start to see that in some of these ferments till they're like, you know, six-month mark or maybe even older. But, like, you know, something like that eggplant. It's umami. It's sour. It's smoky. Sesame's there. There's fermented beans in there. Like, you know, cheesiness to it. Like, it's all of the above. What was that? Um, it was like a bean shoot or something? The... Might have been, was it the peas? The peas, maybe. They were kind of white. That was like, it had like a very the, cumin-y uh, flavor. The, the oh, oh, no, no, no. That, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So that's the, the vegetable-based charcuterie. So those are Chinese long beans. Long beans, that's what it yeah. was. Yeah, so think a green bean, but instead of being, you know, four or five inches long, they're a foot long, 24 inches long. So those, you know, that's a totally different process. And there we borrowed from... Uh, that we, and we call that charcuterie because it goes through the same process. In our minds, it's defined by the method and technique behind it, not necessarily the ingredient. So if we take that Chinese long bean and we smoke it and we cure it on salt with spices and then we inoculate it with a mold and then hang it to dry, that's the same thing I would do to a sopracetta or a brazola, you know, any of those, those dry cured meats. So we do that to these vegetables and... I think those eat like a Slim Jim, like a snack stick. Yeah, and there was like a, there was a, a, a strong cumin and some other spices. Yeah, that there's cumin on there and smoked paprika on that one. And, and it just, it's beautiful because it's like a, it's a rainbow, you know? Yeah. You, you don't know, just because something looks like it's going to taste a certain way, you have no idea what it's going to, the mouthfeel, everything. Like it's, I it's mean, a it's new a experience. moldy, shriveled looking bean. <laughs> yeah, like it, like, so, you know, I don't know what do you even think that tastes like. I, that's what I mean is I, I'm just like, I'm just pick at this point I'm picking up things and just throwing them in my mouth. But yeah, the, the average person, you know, this is like, uh, you know, people do those special things where they take that weird fruit. Oh, and miracle like, berries. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's almost like that here where you're just, you're making up your own flavors for things. Like there are well, interesting bites enough, in here that are unique. We, we literally are synthesizing flavors inherent in the foods that we work with. So when we work with Koji molds, we're able to literally create different types of taste and flavor out of the raw ingredient using the enzymes that these molds create. And that's what's so fascinating because we're creating foods that are truer to themselves than our palates would, that would normally pick up on. It's like you have a treasure chest and you unlock it and you open it and there's all these wonderful things in it. Normally, these things don't happen to the raw ingredients until they're in our digestive system and starting to be broken down by the acids in our stomach and the enzymes in our digestive system, we can do that to a level that creates deliciousness and amazing taste and flavor before it even gets into your mouth. And that's where you start to see that wide variety and just really interesting, you know, things that happen with the ingredients. Now, at this point, are you importing anything or are you just kind of reusing a lot of the so spores with, and things well, you with have? The, with the koji, no, we, we import directly from... Um, Koichi Higuchi, his, his company is in Osaka, Japan. Uh, we import our spores directly from him. The reason for that is fungal spores, mold spores, are different than, per se, like a fermentation starter, like a sourdough yeah, starter like a or, or a kombucha scooby. Yeah. They're, they're different from that. And random mutations can happen. 
if you try to grow out your own starter, you know, this mold is native to the tropical parts of, of Asia. Um, and this is Cleveland, Ohio. So if I take something from that part of the world and try to grow it here, and I don't exactly replicate the conditions or the exact yeah. food source that allowed it to be domesticated, I could get a variety of mutations that occur. Some could be completely benign. Others could literally be deadly. So we'd never grow out our own spore. On top of that, the koji producers in Japan, I think there's only like six left. Wow. Um, and Koichi's company, he's seventh or eighth generation. They've been around for 250 years. Um, he invests in breeding variants of these species that do specialized tasks on a microscopic level and also breeding out different species. Um, we wouldn't have that protection of biodiversity, right? Like the koji industry would become this like red, delicious apple, disgusting. Right, yeah. You know, you go to the grocery store, and it's like Granny Smith, red, right? delicious. And it's like, these are apples are gross. Why are we still eating them? They're horrible. Um, you know, so we, we always, we always source. And there's some like, uh, there's a company on the West Coast called Gem Cultures. Uh, which is great, and they import from Japan, and, and they're a great way if you're not using a lot of koji. So when I buy from Koichi, I buy a lot of spores. Um, if you're just looking for, like, you know, a little bit to mess around with home or just get started in your restaurant, Gem Cultures is a great source, too. Do you have, uh, do you have some home cooks or people that come in and ask to feed off what you got? Or Oh, yeah, it's a daily thing. <laughs> and professional cooks, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. And uh, do you help, you, you know, do you find yourself helping people kind of get their start or you kind of oh, send them oh, in the we, right direction? Oh, we definitely do. And, and we have a Koji class that we do here. Actually, oh, awesome. we've got a few different ones. We've got a Koji class. We have a Koji charcuterie class. Uh, this spring we'll be doing some very specific miso classes. So, like, we, we do that. And we pretty much have a different class every other week. Wow. And... April through November, it's even more than that because we add in the foraging classes. So we pretty much every Sunday have a class that we're doing here. I was going to ask you this, uh, that drawing to the left, what is that mushroom called? I, I saw you have some candles that look like it too. Yeah, that, that's, uh, we can say it's Morchella escalunta. That's the morel mushroom. That's the morel. That's the morel. And so that's, it's rare and, 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 and searched yes and, after. Yes and no. It's highly sought after. It's one of the first mushrooms up in the spring in a lot of latitudes. So, like, after winter, like, there's this fresh food that happens to be really delicious and beautiful and fun to work with. So it's, it's kind of like all of these things all together. And you can find them here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we find, especially down by where Cab is, yeah. you know, by the Culinary Center. Oh, man, tons down there. You guys go foraging in you Worcester? Know, we, we, we do, but generally we find these guys have already been there before we get out <laughs> for it. So you got to be quick and, you know. They're a little more dialed in yeah. than people are. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that's the morale. I've heard that foraging spots are, like, very secretive. People don't share where they go. Well, you know, I think that's an old, like, antiquated kind of thing. And people, that is something people do, but that's ridiculous because, like, these things grow everywhere, and you'll find new spots, and they move, and they're not always in the same place all the time. So, like, it's really easy to find new spots. You just oh, need cool. to invest a little time. So this whole, like, guarding – and this is, like – that whole thing too, right? These secret spots. This is why we're so open with our food too. Like anybody comes in and they want the recipe or see how we do things or what we do, like we show you. We'll give you the recipe. You want the cheesecake recipe? Like here, here it is. We'll make a copy of it for you. 
Like we 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 approach the wild foods the same way. Like just let it be open. Let people get out there. Let experience it. Because yes, you're going to have an influx of people doing things, right? Whether they're foraging too much or everybody's making the same food, but it's also going to make people understand those foods, make them comfortable and spur their own innovation. And also the want to preserve not only the foods, but the traditions and the methods and techniques behind them. So that's what we feel as we push. So if we show people these things in a responsible manner, that's what we're going to see more of happening versus the pillaging and the overproduction and that sort of thing. Well, and, and usually something that takes work, the, the work is kind of part of it. It's the same way that uh, in barbecue, you can, you can read every book and watch every video, but you still have to spend all day with a brisket before you really know how the hell it works. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. And that's all, you know, listen, me, Kenny, Allie, you know, our sous chef Fred, like Angel, who's, who's our bakery sous chef, like we've all been doing this stuff for a long time and we know a lot about it and we work with it on a daily basis. So we have no problem sharing it with you because of exactly what you just said. Because like, no one's going to work as hard as you. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily that, because there are people that will work as hard and some that will work harder. But we already have this accrued experience, and we're already at a level of production that works for us, and we always keep pushing ourselves to go further. So someone that's maybe never worked with these foods, we don't view it as a threat, like us giving you, you know, our recipe and you're going to take it and do whatever with it. Like, fine, like, flattery is, yeah. you know... The, the best form of, or imitation is the best form of flattery. Exactly, yeah. You know, so we look at it that way. And also, you know, it's going to take you a little bit to catch up to us, you know. So uh, you just need to work. You need to work hard. You had to have to build up that experience and that intuition, that, that work feeling, you know, to be able to get there. Well, speaking of Allie and Kenny, uh, I don't know if they, they have a chance to hop over here. Hey, Kenny, you got a couple minutes? <laughs> uh, if you want to just tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how you all started the pop-ups and everything, and then hopefully he'll sit down and help finish the story. Yeah, so uh, Kenny and I, well, Allie and I met in culinary school. Um, hit it off right away. We, we got frisky our first Hudson state, Valley Life. The Hudson Valley Life, and, and been there since, and we'll be, in September, we'll be married 10 years. Wow. Um, Congratulations, that's awesome. Thank you, thank you. So, um, you're right, we're still going. We see each other every day, all the time. Like, we work together, yeah. and then we go home, and we have to be there. <laughs> but, I mean, the attitude and the vibe in here is, like, so happy and creative and all that that it seems to Well, just... it takes a lot to get there. Yeah. You know, opening the restaurant, it definitely was not that all the... I mean, there's so much stress with opening the restaurant and figuring that out. What is that? Is that some Wagyu? No, this is cab brisket. Or cab, this is a chuck roll, a piece off the chuck Oh, that's... Uh, Isn't that beautiful? That's the, uh, the, the Denver. That's the Serratus Ventralis. Oh, that's a Denver. Yeah. I just learned about that cut. It's beautiful. beautiful. That's a short rib muscle word extension. We need to hang that. <laughs> and there's Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> Look at this fucking beef. Yeah. Well, you know, the great thing is, too, like, you learn to butcher. You buy those bigger cuts of meat, yeah. and you can break them down. And, like, we can do things like have ribeye charcuterie that you ate at lunch. Yeah, like, that was delicious. You know, and we're breaking that off the chuck. You know, it's still a ribeye. Yeah. It's the back end of it. You know, and we're paying chuck prices for it versus, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, prime you rib science. prices. <laughs> you know, like, you, you learn that, and then I, we can do that. 
it's fantastic. Well, um, you know, so Allie and I met, and then Kenny worked with a good friend of Allie and I's from culinary school. Um, you were at Oceana, yeah. Michelin starred restaurant in New York City. Got to keep it close, son. Yeah, there you it's go. It's okay if it tickles your mustache. So, um, tell us, tell us the story of the pop-ups and all that. Yeah, I mean, our our mutual friend Steve Luttrell, who's an awesome guy, um, introduced us. Kenny's family's from up here, but he grew up in Virginia, and he, you were coming up here. Your grandfather was passing. Yeah, my grandpa's passing. I just wanted to. Uh, I've been following Jonathan Sawyer's work. So my friend Steve knew Jeremy from culinary school, linked us up. I got a stage when I was up here visiting my grandpa, and then they offered me a job. Yeah, like the next day I offered him <laughs> a job at, at Trentino. We were working with Jonathan. And then that's pretty much the end of it. I inherited my grandpa's house, stayed in Ohio, was only supposed to be here for three months, but here I am five or six years later. Wow. Yeah. And we, we knew we wanted to kind of like do what we do with food. And you know, in a setting. So, yeah. um, and this was kind of just bore out of that. And you'll see too, like, yeah, we're an Eastern European deli, but we have plenty of Southern influence, like that Kenny brings to the table all the time. I, you know, one of our standard cheeses on our breakfast sandwich is pimento cheese. You know, and pimento cheese has become a thing. Like some people spend weeks making it by you know taking the peppers or the chilies and aging them or drying them. Or I mean, by that standpoint, I think. How old is our current batch of chilies? Five months old? Yeah, it all changes up all the time. I mean, we, we get the peppers. Like, peppers kind of, the hot peppers especially come in towards the end of the season up here, and we get how many bushels of them? I mean, one, one, of, one of our farmers, Nick and Shelly, they have Fallen Apple Farm down by the Culinary Center. They're in Ashland. I mean, Nick comes in. He bought a pallet jack because between what he's producing and his Amish neighbors, He'll bring it all to us because he knows, like, yeah, we'll buy a whole pallet of hot peppers from you, and we'll preserve them, we'll ferment them, and then this way we can make pimento cheese with those local Ohio peppers year-round. It works out really well for us. What was it like, uh, you know, you guys are doing pop-ups. Were you doing them out of a, out of a, a kitchen? kitchen. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pain in the fucking ass. Just, oh, my God. Just, just a home kitchen and kind of... Part that, and then a local chef here, Doug Katz, who's, like, great, done amazing things for the Cleveland food scene. Um, Doug kind of mentored us, and Doug had, still has uh, a diner space that, unfortunately, was hit by a fire, arson. And instead of reopening it as a diner, he left it as his catering kitchen, but it still had the whole front of the house set up for the diner. Especially after, you know, insurance kicked in, they rehabbed yeah. it. And it's a historic landmark, actually. It's like a 80-year-old diner, I think, came out of New Jersey or something at some point. And Doug would be like, I like the food you guys are doing. Go ahead. Like, you can, you can as long as you're not getting in anybody's way, you can hang out in the kitchen here, do what you want, host the pop-ups here. And it was super helpful. Super helpful. Yeah, and then sure. Brian and, and Jason, Brian Benichek, who owns the Bottle House Brewery, uh, here in Cleveland, um, they've got a brewery. They had this little kind of makeshift kitchen that they they had in there, um, and they'd always have rotating. They'd bring food trucks in and that sort of thing. And he'd offer our space. Be like, you know, you guys bring a hundred, hundred fifty people into a pop up, and each one of them's buying at least a beer. Like, I'm not going to charge you. Like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Keep whatever you want from the <laughs> pop up. You know, M mutually beneficial. Yeah. 
yeah, we were just really fortunate that we had, you know, Brian and, and Doug, like, in our lives to kind of push that. For sure. So, Kenny, what's, uh, you know, I, I have lots of favorite bites from today, but what, what are you playing with back there that's, uh, that, that you're enjoying right now? I don't know. <laughs> Everything? You missed the mac and cheese bowl on Sunday. Kenny was off on Sunday. I don't know. It's all good. Yeah? Uh, do you, you guys must have, like, a thousand feet of masking tape, or how do you even keep labels and dates on all this stuff? Sometimes we forget. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is is that part of the challenge is just keeping track of, because you're you're keeping things for months and years. Yeah. 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 We go through a ton of sharpies. It's a thing where you can forget about things and it doesn't even matter. Yeah. You forget about it. It's vintage and old, and you can get more money for it. (laughs) I mean, honestly, true businessman. Yeah, and and that's that's what like a lot of kind of people, chefs, they just kind of overlook that, right? They're like, oh, I forgot about this. It's old, and like, we'll taste it. Is if it was held in the proper conditions, the proper acidity, or you know, salinity, all those things, like. Hopefully it's inherently safe. You know, hopefully you did the right thing the first time. And now you've got something that could be just fantastic. I mean, speaking of things, you, you want to try this? Yeah, let's do this. I wanted you to open the bottle. Okay, because I will. We may see some, like, I, when I open some of them, Kenny, you see, like, some smoky wisps come up. You, I know you ate some pastrami, but, like, this you'll be able to drink some pastrami. I want this to be my new cologne. Give it a smell. Wow. I mean, it's... Uh... Oh yeah, it's like uh, we call it, it like soy sauce. We call it pastrami essence. Is this some little cups Pour a little bit in there. Culinarily, you'd use this like a soy sauce or a Worcestershire. That's what it has. That kind of salty umami. Oh yeah. Oh man, you're going for it. Yodi's <laughs> <laughs> camera's rolling, right? Yeah. We Good go. shots at Larder. So this is the steaming liquid left over from the pastrami. Right? Okay. So pastrami gets cured, and then it gets smoked, and then the final cook is a steam. Cheers, cheers, cheers. So that steaming liquid, we mix it with salt and koji and let it sit, and we get this. And now you can season anything with pastrami essence. I want to make, like, like, my own A1 sauce out of this or something. Yeah. Mix this with a little tomato paste and, you know, let it hang out. Oh, yeah. This one's definitely way more soy-like. Than what oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sometimes the batch comes out a little sweeter. Other times a little more, more savory, more lactic. But, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. This is great. Like, uh, a little bit ago, uh, I had rice. a... Oh, yeah. Fried rice is perfect for But I was just at my house... This, a little sesame oil and some rice vinegar just on a salad was, like, awesome. It's like my salad tastes like pastrami. It's it's a very dark color, too. Yeah. You can see, too, like, we don't filter it, so you can kind of see. Yeah, I got a little, I chewed on a little chunk. Yeah, so there's, like, some bits of pastrami and, like, you know, the peppercorns and stuff in there. So, you know, in the same way that, you know, you might go to a beer tasting or things like that, or you guys just constantly opening things, tasting things, and just, it seems like from the, the people I've talked to in fermentation and, and, and these types of uh, experiments that a lot of it has to do, you know, even, uh, you know, some of my mycologist forager friends, they would say that 
you know, once you're good enough, you can actually taste the mushroom to see if it's something, you know, you might spit it out, but that there's I mean, like a, a certain taste to things. Yes. Say, yeah, I mean. It says on the bottle to refrigerate within seven years. Use within seven years. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, it's not going to go bad. And even if it, you leave it uncovered and it grows a little mold on the top, yeah. just scrape fucking it scrape it off and use it. It's fine. Because it's so style. salty, there's not really, no, there's there's not really a threat to anything. No, that's, that's like 10% salt. Yeah. Like there's, yeah, <laughs> nothing's happening to that. So sorry I interrupted you. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I think there's, you get to a point, right, and we just, we just do stuff. Yeah. Try it, taste but, it, play but, with it. I mean, come on. How many failures did we have before we got to the point where we're like, we knew things would just work? I don't know. Not that many failures. Really? Okay. I'm, <laughs> that's it. That's great. Kenny's confident. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's it's specific a, things you follow. You can't fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes things just don't taste good. Sometimes, you know. Yeah, you might have off flavors. Yeah. But it's rare. Sometimes you mess up and you're like, man, I wish I could recreate this mess up every time. Yeah, that happens plenty. Do you keep a lot of And then when that happens, that's like, we write the vintage on the bottle then. We're like, special batch, charge a buck more. (laughs) Charge 10 bucks more. You know. Well, uh, uh, these happy accidents, I mean, is it? Do you just have piles of notebooks back there? Like, are you trying to keep track of this stuff? Or at this point, you're just kind of figuring it out? Uh, well, it used to be piles of notebooks. Now it's digital files. Like, gotcha. now it's you take a picture, make a digital note. It gets stowed away. Like, it, yeah, it's way easier to work that way. Do you have any kind of, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, but things like machines. You can put, like, a dropper in. It'll tell you, like, salinity in any of that. Uh, I mean, we've got pH meters. Like, salinity is easy enough to figure out. And that doesn't that hardly changes, especially with the methods that we're using. Um, yeah, I mean, if we need to, we use the pH meter to test stuff, and, you know, one apple. Just to make sure it's not too far in one direction. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, if you know it's at 10% salt, and you just want to check the pH to make sure that, that, that you know, that's a, that's a redundancy, you know? Yeah. So, Kenny, uh, I don't think these things are as intimidating as people think. Like, right, of well, course. We, we talk have been to doing this for thousands of years, like... Yeah, we, and we, we talked about it. Wheel, you know, we're just finding our little spoke on the wheel. Well, and, and tell us more about, you know, when you came in here to Stage, did you know what they were doing? You had already heard kind of what, what, I what this guy was about? I had a little background on fermentation. I knew how to do some of the stuff on my own. I had already been foraging and looking for mushrooms, obviously, in a different climate, in a different area, but... Still, we're on the East Coast. It's very similar here. Oh, yeah. In Ohio, mushrooms that you're going to find. I mean, I just feel like some people are a little too intimidated by certain things. They think that this stuff is so crazy, and how are you going to leave stuff out? Well, you know what? Your grandparents and their grandparents, they were all doing this stuff, and they lived a pretty good life, and they didn't kill anyone probably, you know? Yeah. You're just putting salt on food and preserving it, leaving it out. Yeah, and this is the best place because, you know, you can just fill your basement with stuff and it'll stay a pretty good temperature nine, ten months out of the year, right? Yeah. Until it freezes. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have more challenges where you are now. Yeah. I mean, everything goes yeah, bad because it gets 100 degrees and it's humid. and Yeah. I mean, we, we have a, 
I, I one of my favorite bars in, in town does a lot of lagering, and they have a huge room that's refrigerated full of wooden fooders. And you know, every three to six weeks in the summer, you see someone in there either it freezes over. Or there's always some kind of thing going on because yeah. it's a hundred degrees outside of that room. Yeah, you know, and it's it's not easy to keep a room at 50-something degrees for the lagering. No, no. It's, it's interesting, too. Uh, you know, a lot of these ancient food preservation techniques, especially things with the misos or a sauce like this, you know, the, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans, when they were making them, they documented what time of year. Pardon me. I feel like I got a sneeze coming. <laughs> uh, what time of year you should start something. You should make it so it can go through that, that cycle, that ebb and flow. And now we know it's actually really important for different stages of autolysis, this enzymatic breakdown, and fermentation as a food goes on and as it ages. So it's interesting, uh, a more temperate climate that has four different seasons is actually way more advantageous to making these foods. And we just, I think, happen to get lucky with that here. Yeah, and I think if you look, obviously more preservation has been made. Like the further north you go and the colder it gets, you have a shorter growing period so you're going to grow as much as you can and preserve it to get through it where you live in texas and they can grow tomatoes year-round down there and they can grow everything year-round you don't have to really necessarily you know resort to preserving food because you have a fresh source of food year-round yeah. yeah up here you know you i mean, when you came up here i remember you being shocked at how short our growing season was yeah, I mean, I live in Virginia. It's pretty much a year where I yeah. grew up in southern Virginia. There's maybe almost, three months you can't grow where you grow yeah, up. Yeah, and if you got hoop houses and stuff, you're still growing. It doesn't matter. Just yeah. in the hoop house. You know, and, and up here, you know, there's, there's people doing extremely progressive work like Elliot Coleman up in Maine and stuff where, yeah, okay, we're showing we can grow in these northern latitudes year-round if you do certain things and create certain infrastructure. But really, like, yeah. But how much so money does coming, it cost to put up all yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, where, it where you were coming, there's maybe three months out of the year you couldn't grow, and up here, there's maybe three months out of the year that we can grow. Like, yeah, <laughs> you were well, literally walking into the reverse. I mean, I'd say not six at, to not eight that months drastic. Here, yeah, because you got kales and collards and all sure. the brassicas and stuff that can survive sure. the wintering. Sure, but definitely a drastic difference from what you were used to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But you learn to adapt and overcome it. Yeah. And then you have, like, huge arrays of canned foods at your disposal that you just use. I mean, how many, are there 100, 200 cans of preserved things up on that shelf? I mean, you could just have a wall of Oh, I mean, each one of those shelves is two rows back, is, is doubled. Of course There's probably a 1,000 jars up there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've bought, anyway, I've probably bought 60 cases of jars. I mean, ball jars, or is at there least. A, oh, at least sixty cases of ball jars on there. That's over six hundred there. So there's no preference on types of jars. There's no better jar for fermentation. No, no. Uh, most of that stuff. Uh, and a lot fermented. of that stuff is canned. Very little of that up there is fermented. Some is like we've got fish sauces aging up there, and different you know soy sauces and that sort of thing. But a lot of that stuff is canned, you know, so we can serve tomatoes right now. So canned is in like kind of a higher heat going in. Yeah, yeah, like water bath canning or pressure canning. You know, the tomatoes we can just water bath can. Uh, the wild mushrooms we have to pressure can so that they're safe. Um, I mean, this past mushroom season was horrible. 
but the year we opened and you couldn't find any or what yeah they, we were just we were flooded in the spring so it drowned everything and then we went into a, a like a two-month drought in the summer when stuff would have been coming up and it was just and just fall things, mushroom season wasn't good at yeah all. it was a boss so but the the season before 2018 was fantastic for us i mean we brought in several thousand pounds of mushrooms just from the county we're in um, we still got some up yeah we still that. have some cans up there from there i mean literally we canned a good 1,500 pounds of mushrooms. I mean, wow. that year alone, I remember Chanterelles, fresh Chanterelle weight, we canned like 350 or 400 pounds of Chanterelles. Which is a, I mean, that's an expensive mushroom if you buy it in the store. Yeah, like 30 bucks retail. Oh, yeah. And you were just finding them. Yeah, and then we just like, you know, they're just in a random salad. Like, we just, you know, we don't. You know, we we work. take the scraps and we make a soda with them. We we ferment them into vinegar and we bottle it and sell it. We put in a you know a random deli case salad and charge six bucks a pound for it. Like we you know you literally have so much that you have to put them in everything. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I ask uh, everyone who's on the show is, you know, what's your message? The people that want it, you know, the the fermentation, the foraging, it makes you more connected. You get what the season is. You understand. The climate you're in, you, you know so much more about your environment by yeah. doing that. What's your message to someone who thinks this stuff is really cool but, you know, might be hesitant to start or has just started and, you know, is ready to take their stuff to the next level? Just do it. Yeah, do it. Just take do it. notes, do it. Yeah. I mean, the, the great thing with these preserved foods, there's this kind of just general rule. If it looks good, smells good, and tastes good, chances are it probably is good and you've got nothing to worry about. So stop being so concerned about if you're going to kill yourself or your family. Um, just go ahead and just have some fun and make some stuff. Your senses will tell you if something is yeah. either spoiled or, you know, potentially going to make you sick. Like they, It's yeah. almost built into us to, to, to know what that is. Yeah, and build on existing knowledge, you know. Or has it been bred out of us? Yeah, well, that's what I'm worried about. You know? That's why you guys are, you know, the champions of this thing. That's why you guys are... Uh, an important part of our culture because you're bringing this stuff back and saying, hey, this isn't a new idea. It might be new to you, but, like, we're just keeping it alive. We, we, we like to say that, you know, we're, we're putting modern sensibilities on archaic technique. Like, that's, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And that's just to emphasize that this, this stuff is old. This has been done for so much. Like, we would not exist as a species, as a civilization, as a, if it weren't for these foods. Literally, they, we live symbiotically with them. Like, they're in our bodies. You don't they, get grocery deliveries 100 years ago in Cleveland. You no. had to find a way to survive. 100 years ago anywhere. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, it's beautiful. I could spend all day here, but I think we have a dinner to go to. Um, I want to thank oh, you guys. Yeah. Um, we love barbecue. <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about that, getting your groceries delivered? Uh, kind of takes the fun out of, like, picking your own produce, making sure you get something that looks good to you. You put all the trust into some, you know, maybe 18 to 20-year-old kid that's getting that entry-level job to go pick your groceries for you, and you, you put your trust into that guy that he's going to pick And did they wash their off. hands before they grabbed your apple? Like, you know, if I'm at the grocery store, I may not wash my own hands as I'm picking my produce, but, like, when I think about it, I'm like, well, if a stranger's doing it, what were they doing? I know what I was well, doing. Well, what were there 10 people before you that touched that apple? Well, there's that, too. I ask everyone to wash their hands before they touch my apple. Yeah, that's, you that's should. That's all I ask. <laughs> uh, 
but but you know you guys are doing an incredible thing i well, can't wait you. for you know the world already pr- pretty much knows about y'all but i just feel like there's a wave of of what you're doing it, it's going to come back and you're keeping it alive and you know we need we we need your help and and your generosity in the world and i'm glad that you're here doing it well we're ha- we're happy to help we're happy to share yeah right oh yeah all the time how many times have you given that cheesecake recipe away I give away all the recipes. I don't care. If you have the recipe, doesn't mean you can execute it. Exactly. Well, on that note, thank you guys. Kenny always tells people, "Good luck with that." <laughs> and he's serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no. There's no method of preparation. Really, our recipes are a list of ingredients with numbers next to them. You figure out how to put them all together. Yeah. Yeah. You learn to make it good. That's it. Learn your ratios and get a scale for your kitchen. That's it. That's the two most important things. Yep. Learn your ratios and have a goddamn scale in your kitchen. I don't know how you don't have a scale in your kitchen. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, cups and ounces are not really the way to do anything. Well, imperial isn't the way. to Metric is so much easier to and more accurate, for, especially for this stuff, too. Instead of fractions of an ounce, you got grams. Yeah. And so a, much easier. A kilo is 1,000 grams. That's it. Yeah, it all breaks Everything down zeros instead that from of rap like, music. yeah, sixteenths, you know, pounds to ounces. It's like, oh my god, I'm horrible at math. Like, just give me zeros to work with. Well, um, you know, you guys are just. I could spend all afternoon sitting here. We've put an hour into this, and uh, you know, this isn't the last time I'll be here. So we're, yeah. gonna, have to, we're gonna have to do a follow up, and uh, maybe I can bring you some treats from Texas the next time. Oh, we'd love it. We'd love it. Oh, yeah, I need some jalapeno cheddar smoked sausage, man. Let's go. We got some chili rellenos, the, the new popular thing down you there. You know, we, drink, the we drink a ton of yerba mate here, all of us. So next time you come up, some yopan, which is a, the only yeah, yeah. caffeinated plant native to North America. It's all over Texas. We have tons of yopan companies now. Yeah, I, oh, we, we know. Hold on, let me write it down. We love, we love us some yopan or yerba mate. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Jeremy, Kenny, Brian. Thanks, man. Um, thank you for everything. Yeah. Appreciate it. Hey, come in and meet man. Y'all don't see me eat man. Hit on the meat man. Y'all don't see me eat man. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. I made tack tongue with a sensitive taster. I was born out in Texas called the land of beef. Never catch a muscle green to show in the hell of like a meat on the meat man.